Hi there, welcome to the Second Adolescence Podcast. Here, we talk about all things queer healing and second adolescence. So what is second adolescence, you might ask? Second adolescence is a sort of developmental life stage queer people navigate in our post-coming out adult years after growing up within an anti-queer world. For many, second adolescence is about healing the wounds of our younger queer selves, gaining the experiences they missed out on, and unlocking what it means for us to exist as our most free and true selves. I am your host, Adam James Cohen, psychotherapist and human who went through his own second adolescence. On this week's episode, we have Ryan Backer. Ryan is an ageism activist and is also a human who just, you want to hear talk and share stories. It was such a great time having this conversation with Ryan. I can't stress that enough. In the conversation, you'll hear Ryan share about their own journey of discovering their sexual identity and their gender identity. And yeah, what adolescence was like for them, what coming out and post coming out was like for them. And gosh, yeah, it was just a really, really interesting conversation. And I'm excited to invite you into it. And as with every conversation and with every guest story, I really want to invite you as a listener to listen with open curiosity, knowing that all of our stories are unique and different. You might hear guests share things that really differ from your experience, as well as share things that absolutely give voice to what you went through or are currently going through. And I really hope that all of this happens and that together we can continue growing and expanding our awareness of what life and queerness and healing can be for folks. If after the show you want to connect further, feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more. And you can connect with the show on Instagram at, at secondadolescencepod. All right, that's it for me for now. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, my name is Ryan Backer. My nickname is Twinkle. I am originally from the United States. I'm from New Jersey, but I'm currently living in Jojage, which is historically a gathering place for many First Nations people, but today it's colonially known as Montreal. I call myself an age activist, so I'm very curious and fascinated by aging, and I do a lot of work in the anti-ageism realm. I am married to a lovely partner. I have an adventure cat named Fifth, who I hike with and go on bike rides with. Yeah, I mean, I could go on a lot of different avenues, but I guess like relevant to this conversation, I identify as non-binary, transmasculine, queer person. Awesome. I just want to talk about everything you just <laughs> said. There's so many different from Twinkle. I have a lot going on. Like everything. Yes, totally. First, yeah. Nickname. That was one of the first things you said. Share about that. Right. Share about your nickname. Well, I'll first share. Growing up, I had another nickname. I'm totally like the concept of the the dead name is something that really actually upsets me because I mm. feel like there is so much death involved with being transgender, you know, with like untimely deaths of suicide or murder. Mm. Um, and I feel like the idea of a dead name is, is for me personally, is really discounting like the fact that I am still the person that I was when I was born. And just mm -hmm. because my parents named me something, I don't have a negative relationship with that name. So I'll just say that I was born Elizabeth and that was my great grandmother's name. And so her nickname was Bessie. So ever since I was born, my family called me Bessie. It was my nickname throughout my entire childhood. I really liked it because it was unique. No one else had that name. Whenever I went anywhere and people were like, oh, Bessie, like, that's you, you know, and I didn't need a last name attached to it at all. 
so it was just something that I was really, it was really special to my identity in a few different ways. So after I came out as trans and I legally changed my name to Ryan Backer, which is my former last name. So my father's last name and mm. Backer is my mom's maiden name because my parents divorced. It's her last name. Mm. Um, so that's how my name formed. But it's a very, Ryan is a very plain name. So I would go places. I lived in Europe for a few years. And when I came back to New York City, where I lived for 10 years prior, I'd be texting people, you know, and I'd be like, hey, it's Ryan. I'm back in New York. I was so used to using just my first name. I remember writing something for a friend and leaving a note at their workplace and being like, hey, it's Ryan. Hmm. And these people didn't know who I was because Ryan is such a common name. They were like, sure. Ryan who? And I was like, oh my God, like I have to change my identity. So instead of that, at that point in my life, I was very binary on the M side. Mm. And I was coming to a place where I realized that I was having just as much discomfort and pain and suffering being all the way on that side of the binary as I was when I was on the F side. Mm. So I realized, okay, there's a happy medium to this. And I was really embracing my non-binary identity. And Twinkle came about, to answer your question in a very short amount of time now, it came about because I was on Radical Fairyland in England. If you don't know what Radical Fairies are, they're like a community of gay, mostly cis men who sometime in the past few decades realized that getting a connection to each other in the land and in a way their sacred masculinity and sacred femininity mm. was a really powerful way to connect, especially throughout the AIDS crisis. So they have different what they call sanctuaries throughout the world. They're just gathering places. And so this one was a temporary one in the UK at an abandoned golf course, mm -hmm. a reclaimed golf course, really. And it was mm -hmm. a festival called Queer Spirit. And it's still happening, I think, in some way. But it was the first one. It was my first festival ever. And there were about 400 people there. And I was just blown away by how many people were there. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of people there were like, this is the smallest festival I've ever been to. And I was just like, what? This is <laughs> festival culture in Europe is just so different sure. than it is here. So it was really beautiful to experience that. Mm. But anyway, all of that to say, at Fairyland, it is pretty customary for people who show up to use names that they feel like apply to them in any given moment. So, you know, one day you could be one name, one day you could be another name. So it's really about reclaiming our unique identities. Yeah. And so because of that, I went with Twinkle mostly because I have a poet friend who always calls me Orion. And so mm. I feel like the connection with Orion and the stars yeah. and Twinkle. And also if you take off the L and the E, you can just go by Twink, which I find yep. really appealing and mm. endearing. And mm. also like, I love being able to go up to people because I use it just as much as I use Bessie. Like I use mm. it for mostly everything except for legal reasons and professional reasons, usually. But anyway, I'll go up to someone and I'll say, you know, hi, my name's Twinkle. And people become joyful when they Absolutely. hear it. Yes. So it's like a life hack of getting people to smile. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as you're talking, I'm smiling. When you first said Twinkle, it, it sparked that joy in me. And then hearing <laughs> that story of how you found this name. Yeah. Whoa, I'm just still so struck by kind of this idea like you were sharing each day, each moment, having the opportunity when you're at that festival to use 
name as a tool of expression that can continuously shift and follow kind of where your energy is at and where you're, oh, like, I love this idea. Yeah, you got to check out the Rad Fairies. There are many around you. I'm sure you even know Rad Fairies and you don't even know you know them, you know, that kind of thing. There's so many places I want to go in this conversation. Let's pause and back us up. I want to like go back to the beginning of your story. Like, where did your story begin and what was happening kind of in that first chapter? I mean, my story definitely begins with many other stories before mine, but I Mm. will start with mine. I guess like one key thing from my childhood that I find myself bringing up a lot because it's really helpful to describe where I'm still at today, like something that has never changed inside of me is that when I was, I think I was about four, my sister, who's three years older than me, was given an American Girl doll. Like, you know, my parents probably bought it for her as a gift. And around that time, my mom asked me, do you want an American Girl doll too? Or would you want one? I must have seen it as a very big deal. And I think my Mm -hmm. mom was treating it that way too. And I said, I want to wait to see if I turn into a boy or a girl first. Wow. And, you know, as a four-year-old, like, that's where my brain was. And I feel like now it's still where my brain is. I'm just like, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. And I don't think at this point, I don't think I ever will. Of course, society kind of forces me to choose in many, in many ways. And I find myself sort of dancing that dance more easily than a a lot of dear friends of mine. I've heard before, like people say that for trans people on the binary, gender is a prison and for non-binary people, it's a playground. And so sort of navigating that territory is a pretty interesting experience. But I try to take up opportunities like this one and just even coming out as trans to random strangers Mm. because I feel like it's important work that I can emotionally handle. Mm. And so I do that. I mean, I basically spent my childhood living that reality in a lot of different ways. And how were the people around you responding and supporting or getting in the way of that reality? I mean, I was like a tomboy in the 90s, so it Mm. wasn't that big of a deal, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I definitely, I will say I did have behavioral problems as a kid. So I was like in class and I'd be the class clown. I would like Mm -hmm. take people's attention off of what was happening. Looking at it now, I think I was just trying to instill joy in a very institutional and sterile setting, Mm -hmm. which I'm like, oh, the amount of grief that it caused at home, though, like getting report cards back that was like lack self-discipline, things like that. It was just like there were consequences. But I also think that I was seeing through the facade of institutionalized education. Like, why are we doing this the way that we're doing this? So I don't know if that directly relates to my gender identity or my queerness as a queer kid. I was, I did grow up in a pretty conservative part of New Jersey. So where I'm from, Sussex County, it's a very Republican county. In New Mm. Jersey, which is a blue state, but it's the countryside, you know, the mountains. And it's so conservative that Democrats don't even run. They don't even bother to run. Mm. There's like when you go to vote in the local elections, there's not even a Democrat to vote for because people are like, why bother? It took me a few years after leaving to realize, oh, there were radical people where I grew up, but they were so radical that they didn't bother getting involved in local politics. Mm. You know, I think you're going to have all different types of people everywhere. But that being said, I think I was I was definitely made fun of as a kid for 
being me. Another example is the famous game of like boys versus girls in kindergarten and me being like playing both sides a bit Uh (laughs) of being like, this game is stupid. Like, (laughs) how do I hack it? I mean, when I was seven or eight, I learned what lesbian meant. And so automatically I was like, I spent an entire summer basically being like, I'm a lesbian, I'm a lesbian, I'm a Mm -hmm. lesbian, I'm a lesbian. You know, at the time, I don't think I understood the weight of what I was saying, Mm. but I connected with it. Uh So those are just some snippets. Yeah. And as you're talking, I, at least what I hear is this like knowing within you and kind of this unabashed, like checked into who you are and curiosity about who you are. Like like that little four-year-old you who just right away answered that question of like, I don't know yet. And then thinking about, yeah, you at eight and just kind of just hearing this, like, sure. Okay. That's me. You were just like letting yourself explore. Was there any blocks to any of that knowing? Because I'm hearing like lots of younger you, even in school, when you were like trying to spark joy, I hear like a connectedness to like who you were on the inside. And I don't know if that feels true or not, or, but yeah, were there any blocks to that? Internally, I don't think so. I think my mom really wanted me to wear pink and like dresses. But that being said, like, I don't think I would have been able to go to those places that you just described if I didn't have two loving and supporting parents who really cared for me and still care for me. Mm. So I don't think that there were that many blocks because also you know society was changing too you know i grew up in a very sort of changing time where it was getting to be gender equality and stuff like that like it was okay for me to be doing those things for the most part i mean i did get in trouble a lot because of the acting Mm. up in school but i don't think internally there were many blocks i mean not that i can think of you know i was still just forming the idea of who I was, I guess. And I had no idea that I would be able to live the life that I'm living now. That's for sure. At that age, it was very clear to me that there wasn't much room for as much exploration as I have now. And that's probably just because I was a kid and I didn't understand how big the world is and how much there is to offer. And then what happened as you got older? Like, what was the rest of adolescence like? Okay, so this is the plot twist. Around the time I was maybe five or six or seven, my dad started getting really conservative. So I don't know exactly what his political leanings were before he met my mom. But I do know that as they stayed married, he became more and more conservative. I mean, my mom was raised Presbyterian and my dad was raised Catholic and my dad didn't want to raise us Catholic. So they agreed on raising us Presbyterian. And so my mom still goes to church. She's religious. But my dad got so conservative that he started like standing up in church and talking about how we need to stop abortion. And my mom didn't respond well to this. He also did stuff like focus on the family and promise keepers, Mm. pretty right wing patriarchal organizations that just so happen to be very anti-gay. Essentially, what he was doing, I later found out, is he was bringing himself through conversion therapy. So because of this conversion therapy, before he even had a chance to come out or accept that about himself, my mom Mm. ended up divorcing him. So the big moment of my childhood was that experience for sure. 
so I found out that he was gay when he was coming out to himself, basically, with the help of the therapist, because what he went through was really challenging for him. It was around the time I was like 12 or 13. He was just having a really hard time, really struggling with his own internal demons, essentially, that like were instilled in him by the Catholic Church. At first, he was trying to fight the divorce because divorce was bad, Mm, you know, in his eyes, divorce was a sin. And then later on, it was like, okay, he's single, and now he's dealing with coming out. And it was hard to be entering teenagehood and having my father going through second adolescence. Right. Right. It was very jarring. My reaction was to basically stay far away from even considering the idea that I might be there too. As in, like, I might be anything than a heterosexual. And so I had classmates who started dating people around that time. And I was like, okay, yeah, um, I was approached by a boy. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to start dating boys because that looks way easier than what he's going through. So it was a big lesson for me. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't doing this math and doing this equation and being like, oh, I'm straight because my dad's gay. It's taken me decades to... really come to terms with everything that was happening back then. So it kind of delayed my coming out process a bit. I didn't really come out to myself until I was around 16. I was actually shoveling snow. Like I remember the moment really well where I was like, you know what? If I liked women, that would be okay. And it was like a very, it was like, maybe it was because of the physical exercise of shoveling or I think it was a snow day. So not being at school just like there was space enough for me to be like, it's okay. And then the first thing I did was like, okay, well, now that I'm gay, I guess I should watch the L word. (laughs) (laughs) That's the rite of passage. (laughs) Yeah, that was like my my first thing. I was just like, okay. Uh Because between that time too, between when my dad came out and when I came out to myself, I was also being exposed to a lot of the culture that he was exploring Mm. for the first time. So Uh I had the privilege of hanging out in the West Village as a 13-year-old, just seeing what that life was like. I think it was really formative for me because his boyfriend went into the city a lot. So we would go into the city together. It was very exciting for me because it was just, everyone was just so welcoming and kind, Mm. all my dad's friends. And it was just like a really interesting experience, but I didn't let myself come to terms. I had to do it on my own time in my own way. And I didn't actually end up coming out to my parents until I was 19, my first semester of college, I came out to them. And it was really Mm. difficult because I was trying to convince them that I was straight or not, at least not gay. Like my mom said one time when I was a teenager, like, you know, if you were a lesbian, it would be okay. And I'd be like, Mm. well, I'm not. And so I think watching my dad go through his second adolescence when I did, it kind of delayed me coming out as queer at the time, I guess I called myself gay or lesbian, which then delayed me coming out as trans. I feel like if it hadn't worked out that way, like magically, my parents, you know, figured out whatever it was that was going on with them, and they magically stayed together, I have a feeling that I would have come out younger than I did, at least come out to myself younger than I did. So it's, it's a lot. Like kind of what you were saying at the beginning, like with my introduction, it's like, oh, there's a lot to my identity. And then I bring up this thing and people are like, that's what? (laughs) 
Mm. <laughs> like a whole other layer to it. There's so many different directions that I could go in. So maybe... Yeah. I, we should just talk for 12 hours. But so what happened in your life after first coming out as gay to your parents? Like what did that next bit of time look like for you? It was a pretty turbulent time. Like I definitely faced a lot of really difficult stuff internally, mm. which all eventually led to me coming out as trans. But building up to that, I was doing a lot of escaping with drugs and alcohol. And I mean, I was living in Brooklyn. I was a barista. So I was drinking a lot. I was getting high on coffee every day, sustaining myself on pastries. Uh, my life started getting very, very, very small. I mean, I had some friends. New York City is this type of town where my only friends were really the people that I worked with and the people that I lived with because I didn't have time mm. for a social life outside of that. And I liked working as a barista. I should say I did start off going to film school. Uh, that's where I went right out of high school. So I was there for a year and a half. And for various reasons, I left and I transferred to Brooklyn College where I was starting to go part time for two semesters. I did some women's studies classes. Those were really helpful for me. And then I dropped out completely just because I was Again, sort of fighting the idea that institutionalized education is the end all and be all. My mom was really upset about that. I, I broke my kneecap too when I was 21. So that definitely uh, added a geez. complication to the situation. Gosh, yeah, throw that in the mix. Yeah. yeah, so that had a huge impact on me of just like the way that I functioned and moved throughout the yeah. world. And still move. I mean, my gait is different. When I'm sleepy, it becomes painful. When it rains, it hurts. It's still with me to this day, like the pain of that time through that injury, but also just with me emotionally. But I turned it around. I think it's a miracle that I turned it around, but I did. How did that happen? It was with the help of a lot of people, like definitely my loving, caring family, friends, strangers, just a ton of people helped me along the way to see that escaping through drugs and alcohol wasn't the only solution to things, that there were other ways that I could navigate life. So it took years. <laughs> it took yeah. many years. It's not like it's like, well, and then one week it all. Totally. It's like right. it sort of took me years to get to that point, And then it's taken mm -hmm. me years to recover. And it was definitely a wild time, but looking back, I'm really grateful for it because I know that I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for those experiences. And even the breaking the kneecap, you know, I think that experience definitely helped me inform my work that I do mm -hmm. now. And it is one of the reasons why I went back to school to study aging was because I had had that experience of losing my physical abilities while my mental capacity was still there. I also, around that time, realized that I didn't have much of a network outside of my very insular friend group. And that insular friend group was all around my age. And so I volunteered for SAGE, Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders, in New York. And I got a mm -hmm. volunteer gig visiting an older lesbian and that experience was really helpful for me. Just being around someone who's older was so helpful mm -hmm. for my mental health because 
I mean, honestly, Adam, like the, what I told you about, like not knowing whether I was a boy or a girl, like Sandy, who's the, the woman who I would visit, she didn't necessarily use that language, but the way that she lived her life was so challenging to the gender binary. Mm-hmm. So she didn't necessarily use the term genderqueer or non-binary or anything like that. Like she was Sandy, she mm-hmm. was a lesbian, she was a she. But Mm. the way that she navigated life, her attitude and her essence was inherently gender nonconforming. And she is in a book, I forget, The Gay Metropolis, I think it's called. And in that book, and she's told me this many times, she said that she never came out. She's never had to come out. She's always been gay. She's always been, you know, herself Mm. and... um, Mm. I thought that was pretty cool, you know, and she has a very loving family. So she's just always been herself. Mm. And that was really cool. That was really helpful to just be witness to her and and experience her life. Yeah. I mean, this really speaks to also just the power of having elders and having their guidance and wisdom and experience. Their guidance and their wisdom and their experience. But also, I think the thing that gets ignored is... Yeah. That they don't know a lot of stuff, you know, that they're mm. still figuring mm. it out. That uh-huh. everyone, no matter what age, we're all still figuring it out. Like she was still figuring out her gender, you know, probably up until she passed. I think that's something that really helps me when I spend time with older people. I realize, oh, they're still figuring it out. Uh-huh. There's not like this grand equation where I'm going to graduate into being all knowing at some point. It's like, no, yeah. we're all just still trying to figure it out. Ooh, thanks for adding that. And there's something in that I also like here, there's a connected humanity that we have with people of all ages in that there's still so much we don't understand about this really confusing, messy thing that is being a human. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. There's so many threads in there. It's like, uh. totally, totally. (laughs) That's why I love my work so much. Like, I'm just curious about living when it comes down to it. I'm just curious about life and time, that combination. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like, at the time you were really getting to spend all this time with Sandy and where you were at, it sounds like shifts were happening in terms of your life work direction. And then mm-hmm. also in terms of your own experience of your identity. What else? Like, tell me more about that time period. I mean, that time period, it was like the first time because I wasn't drinking. And then eventually I stopped smoking weed too and doing all the other things. I just started to listen to myself. I think I started to listen to my body and I didn't know it at the time. At the time, you know, I was struggling with having to get a different friend group because my friend group was, you know, disappointed in me for not continuing on with that lifestyle. And I was figuring out what I was going to do with my life as far as did I want to keep on being a barista, even though I developed like a very severe caffeine sensitivity. And because I had put so much time and attention into drugs and alcohol, I wasn't able to let anything else into my life. And because I put those to the side, I was then able to welcome other people and opportunities into my life that I'd never considered before, that I'd never really Mm. been open to before. So I'd always been sort of around the anarchist scene, you could say, in New York, kind of like dumpster diving and sort of very punk, riding my bike all over and and going to like Mm. DIY bike shops and the anarchist bookstores and stuff. But I was never able to really apply myself to any of that. 
And I feel like I was starting to be able to basically be a community member in this organization called Flatbush Mutual Aid. And mutual aid is like a very anarchist idea. I think the pandemic has sort of taken it from its roots a bit, but it it is a very anarchist idea. And so, you know, I was hanging out with people of different ages, mostly straight, but people of different ages in that setting. And I was just open to new experiences, I guess. And I was really having to let go of some pretty tough stuff. And, you know, once I went back to school, it was like this whole experience where I was getting straight A's for the first time in my life. And that was really powerful, you know, because my sister got straight A's and my mom would like expect that of me and I was never able to get there. And now, you know, at that time, I was able to apply myself and I was able to sit down. I was able to pay attention. I was able to ask questions. I was able to be a good student because it was something that I wanted to learn about that I was really interested in. And I saw it. Mm. I saw me getting that BS, even though science is not my strong suit. It was like under the health education umbrella. But because it was Mm. gerontology, it was very interdisciplinary. So I was taking classes Mm. in all the different departments. It was still a lot of health education classes. And it was very challenging for me. Mm. But I saw that that suffering in a way that I was experiencing would bring me joy later on. And it's kind of that way how I felt about transitioning too. So when I came out as trans, it was like, wow, this sucks writing my whole family and telling them that, you know, I'm changing my name and that I'm not a woman and, you know, really, really challenging. But I knew that there was something on the other end of that challenge that would let me have a little bit of peace. And also, you know, have a little bit of peace and room to explore because it wasn't possible for me to explore all those parts of my identity unless I was able to be honest with those who I loved and cared about. You know, like so much of our identity is about communicating with other people and, and forming that identity through that communication. And if I wasn't able to be open and honest with the people I loved about what I was experiencing, then it would be impossible for me to live my life. That's stuff that I still have challenges with today. How honest and open am I about, like, do I put that I'm non-binary in my bio? Do I put that I'm queer when I'm introducing myself and stuff like that. It's an interesting world to navigate. And I think this is what came up for me when I was thinking about talking to you today was like, it's an interesting world to navigate. And maybe it's so tricky to navigate this idea of a second adolescence, not because it's hard being gay, but because it's a symptom of how challenging it is to be hetero, right? Mm. Of like, in a weird way, it's like, heteronormativity has such a strong grip on everyone. The problem isn't loving other people or feeling differently about your body than other people or anything like that. Like the challenge is, is this rigid path that has been set down for all of us that we are expected to stay on. And I've just found so much joy from Mm. deviating that path over and Mm. over and over and over and over again, because it's not like Mm -hmm. you just come out once and it's done, Mm -hmm. but it's challenging, you know, it's challenging to see the rest of society on that path. Still, I always describe my sister as very straight in every sense of the word (laughs) compared to me, who's like very queer in every sense of the word. But I see some of her challenges in life could be mediated if she just 
took a step back and realized like, oh, like, is this what I want? Like, is this my desire or not? Like, is this because I want this or is this because society wants this from me? Mm-hmm. And I really benefited from asking myself that over and over and over again in my life. And I wish that for other people. But there's also joy in not having to think about it either, I guess. Sure. Right, right. Which, you know, I benefit from too sometimes. But yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey. It strikes me that you've done a ton of self-work and a ton of reflecting on your story. But what's that like right now, like kind of in this moment after traveling through the parts of your journey that you shared? Well, it's the work is never done. <laughs> it's yeah. like I'm Amen. still yep. Yep. I'm still totally. doing things and figuring out things and working on things that I've been working on my entire life in a way. And things have gotten a lot better. My life is definitely way more magical than I ever expected. Mm. But the work doesn't get easier. It never gets easier. (laughs) There's still a lot of pain and suffering in my life. The thing I think that has helped me with that, though, has been my meditation practice. That's been transformative. So in 2015, I was 27. I did a silent 10-day meditation. And it was through that that I really learned things about my mind and my body that I'd never known before, that I'd never like allowed myself to know, that I'd never given myself space for. Mm. And also, I think fear came up so much in those 10 days because I think I had a real fear of tapping into my deeper self, tapping into who I really was. Mm. And I've done two more since then, and it's been similar experiences where I've gone deep and been able to find a piece. So now, you know, when I have a lot more tools when I'm doing this difficult work. But yeah, it's definitely like a daily thing. It's so rewarding. So, you know, I wouldn't want to stop doing the work. I mean, through the pandemic, it's been a roller coaster of there was there's just been so much, you know. Totally. And also something that I haven't mentioned yet, but I think is really important to my story is the climate crisis. And, Mm. you know, I'm so grateful that now people are able to talk about it, like the way that we are as in like it's an eco emergency and there's climate crisis related anxiety. Like I definitely Mm. think I had that growing up, but I didn't have the words for it. Now I have the words for it. So I'm able to talk about it. But that's definitely part of it. And it definitely taps into my work, too, where I'm really curious about, like, humans in general have this really hard time with the idea of our mortality. And we spend all this time, you know, looking for the fountain of youth and trying to extend life. And at the same time, we're destroying our planet and have a really hard time understanding the fact that the planet is mortal. I've spent a lot of time just, like, in meditation and just in my life, like, really accepting that time is a finite resource and realizing, you know, I'm starting to think about like, well, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Like, how do I want to live that out? And I am so grateful for my early 20s because it really kind of gave me this like weird foundation of having to do all that work to get out of the sort of pit of despair that I was Mm. in, that now Mm. I have that capacity to be like, oh, it's a pandemic. Okay, well, it's a crisis. Probably what I should do is to reach out to other people and talk about the fact that there's this pandemic happening right now and that there's a crisis happening. 
And that human connection and connecting with especially other queers has just been so rewarding and so resourceful and built my resiliency so much. And it's, you know, it's times like this where I'm like, oh yeah, that helps. It helps to connect with other people. Gosh, thank you so much for for sharing. I I feel like there's so much more about your story that I want to get to know. (laughs) I feel like in some ways we scratched the surface, but everything you shared had so much depth and beauty. And yeah, I just feel so grateful for you coming on and sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me on because I wouldn't have been able to explore it in that way if you hadn't prompted me to do so. Mm. You know, I always love opportunities like this because I feel like there's just so much to untangle. And there's also just so much to do in life that sometimes it's really rewarding to just sit down and to talk about this stuff in a way Mm. that I know other people listening to this will maybe identify with something that I say, or it's Mm. a way to sort of pass along the harder knowledge that I've gotten through my experiences. So it's a great opportunity and I love the idea and I'm really curious to hear what other people have to say. Awesome. Well, then if any listeners want to follow up with you or get to know more about you and your work, what's a good place to direct them? A good place to direct you is probably to oldschool.info, which is a clearinghouse that I co-founded. And I'm on there. You can just search Ryan Backer and my face will show up and my email will show up. Say more about Old School. So Old School is a clearinghouse of anti-ageism resources. And it was started by anti-ageism activists named Ashton Applewhite. And it was really her idea. And she went to someone named Kyrie Carpenter, who you know, and asked Kyrie, like, listen, like, I have this idea to make like a one-stop shop for, but not shop, have it be free of all the resources having to do with ageism online so that someone can just go and find everything that exists out there on ageism. So they started to put it together and they realized that they might need more help. And that's when they brought me on. And it sort of just became this snowball where it started off with just this idea of having a list. And then Curie was like, well, we need to make the list look nice. So it became like a website of sorts. And then Mm. once we launched it, people just went wild for it. Like in the context of the age world, people went wild Mm. for it. We realized it was a need that was being filled and we just kept on going with it. It started in 2018 and Mm. we're always growing and expanding and getting new resources on there and changing. Now we do workshops and consult with people. We've worked with the World Health Organization and all sorts of people trying to figure out how to combat ageism. Awesome. Oldschool.info. Yeah. Check it out. Great. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you again so, so, so much. It was just such a treat. Thank you so much, Adam. Hey, thanks for joining us for today's conversation. Feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and more. And you can connect further by following the show on Instagram at at secondadolescencepod. If you're interested in being a future guest on the show and you want to come on and share about your own second adolescence, visit secondadolescencepod.com slash be a guest and you can submit your interest there. All right, that's it for me for now. Whether it's morning, afternoon, night, wherever we're finding you in your day, go on out there and keep doing things that would make younger you absolutely thrilled. That is what it's all about. Mm. All right, 
Take good care.